0: Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow, is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. Hey, what's up, everybody? Super excited for the Q&A episode today. I'm going to punch Grant Falco in in just a second, and we'll go ahead and get rolling. Joining me once again from Spokane, Washington is Grant Falco. Grant, I'm super excited about the Q&A episode. How about you?
1: I love it. Can't wait, Tim.
0: All right. Well, hey, our first question comes from Jess Kittle and Jess is out of Akron, Ohio. He's somebody that's just been awesome to get to know inside the Firetime Network. And Jess is a sales rep. And his first question is, thousands of dollars in co-op funds go unused from year to year. How can manufacturers and distributors help the dealer to use those funds and not lose them? That's an awesome question. Grant, what do you think about that?
1: You know, I think co-op is just one of those things that a lot of us retailers don't understand um, how to use, don't, aren't always able to stay on it to keep up with what the co-op is. And before we know it, it's gone. And it's too bad because it is really the manufacturer trying to help each and every one of their dealers succeed. Um, But it ends up being difficult to manage. And I would say that like Jess is saying that tons of money is left on the table. And I hate to say it, but I'm one of those guys that uses a bunch of that money at the end of the year requesting more co-op because of so many people not using it. But in in all reality, Tim, my forte is not marketing or co-op or anything like that. What do you have to say about it?
0: You know, I've thought a lot about co-op because... I think he's right. I mean, there's, I think there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that don't get used every year for a lot of reasons. I think that as a sales rep, especially a distributor, this is, is such a value piece to, to, as a rep, be able to go into your dealer and say, hey, you've got this much money left, and then come with ideas of, yeah. hey, you know, you've got two months left. What do you want to use it on? Have yeah. you thought about advertising on Facebook? Have you thought about investing in new apparel for your team members there, I think you can get really creative with co-op and for a lot of dealers that are nervous to experiment. I think that this is an awesome chance to do it, but I, I think, you know, I, I know what it's like to be busy. I, the reason it doesn't get used is because a lot of dealers are in the whirlwind And they're just, they're not focused on thinking long-term. And so they just let it go to the wayside. I I think that as a sales rep, if you can go in knowing, let's say you're a distributor. And so you've got different companies that have different amounts of co-op available. I would go in with a list of those companies and a plan of what to do. But I I think as a, as a retailer, I mean, I can't think of a time that a rep came in with the only purpose of the appointment being help me spend my co-op dollars. But to me, that's really valuable.
1: Yeah, and I think that, you know, being intentional about reminding them of the co-op amount, also giving them ideas is maybe difficult for a sales rep, but I think if if you think about it, there there are some dealers in every sales rep's territory that utilize co-op and utilize it in ways that they succeed at. And I think sales reps really would do a service, a huge service to the the retailers if they would just give examples. I think Every retailer is looking for the quickest way to get there. And when we're talking about marketing money, it's either we're busy enough where we don't need to market because we got enough, you know, business, or we don't have enough business/slash enough money to afford the advertising. So we never end up using it. And I think it's because we don't understand how to. I think a sales rep could do a lot of work by being intentional about bringing the co-op dollar and saying, you have this much free money, it's a 50% match or you know whatever it is, and then giving them some examples of how to use it, I think would be invaluable. Every retailer struggles going to their advertising guy and not knowing what they're asking for. If we could give an example to that gentleman, the advertising guy, hey, this is what someone else has done. Can I, can I do this? Can you do this? And how much is it gonna cost? Because I have this co-op here. I think it would actually expedite the process exponentially.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I think about with co op, the first thing I would think about if if someone doesn't know how to spend it is just apparel. I mean, I think as a sales rep, getting a a team outfitted to to have nice logoed gear not not you know cheesy clothing or anything, but but comfortable professional attire like what you guys have at Falcos that's a great way to spend co op funds. And and I think that a lot of that stuff gets missed where you get dealers that that don't spend their money and their team members don't look that professional. I think that, that that's pretty low-hanging fruit.
1: Yeah, I mean, all a co-op with clothing entails is slapping the logo of the manufacturer on your sleeve, and then you can have a Falco shirt or whatever your retail company is called. And we have t-shirts. We order any amount of leftover inventory or leftover co-op right about right now, We've ordered, I think, about $1,500 in t-shirts and sweatshirts with Yodel and ICC on them because those are the, the leftover co-op that we haven't used uh, for this year. So I think that's an, an absolute great idea. And, you know, my employees love to get more clothes. And uh, even though they have Falcos on them, free shirts, free sweatshirts, free hats uh, are a big deal to employees. Yeah.
0: And I I think that just the intentionality of a rep, whether you're a factory rep or a distributor rep, the intentionality of going in with a plan will earn you so much credibility with that dealer. Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into the next question. This comes from Casey Harvey out of Baltimore. Casey was a guest on this podcast a few episodes ago. He's got a great question here and he says, what kind of market data slash metrics slash research do dealers want and need for manufacturers and distributors can i jump in and take this grant
1: yeah i think you should
0: okay so this is what i think i think that that's an amazing question and i think that there are a lot of manufacturers and distributors that have a a ton to offer i think that the problem is that a lot of the time dealers don't know what they want and very often when manufacturers and distributors give them information they they don't tell them what to do with it so so I've seen this a lot where a manufacturer or or a company will, will spend all this money doing they'll get this huge initiative, whether it's like research or market data, whatever it is. And it's, it's incredible research and they spend a ton of money for it and they give it to their dealers and their dealers go, Oh man, that's really cool. And then they just keep going and doing what they're doing. I think that what has to happen is that dealers need a plan. And so if you're a distributor or a manufacturer that has, has invested in some kind of market data, you know, lead research, consumer trends, behaviors, anything like that. It's got to be boiled into a plan for your dealers to where they can say, I know exactly what I need to do to execute.
1: You know, that is an amazing point, Tim. Um, This was a tough question for me to answer. and, And truthfully, I don't know what I expect from manufacturers. And this isn't to say that manufacturers give us very little. They give us a ton. But when talking about how to better operate my business through analytics or data, you know, truly it's a difficult question because it's just not offered a ton. But I think when it comes down to it, if they can give us a plan, something that they've put together based on that information. I mean, again, I say retailers are looking for it to be easy. We are so inundated with the employee issues, the customer issues, trying to get that next job, trying to stay afloat, dealing with COVID, that we need sales reps to make it easy for us. And if there is some analytics that you have for the Northwest region in which we are in and buying trends or whatever it is, I think giving it to me is one thing, but giving to me and showing me how to use it is a whole nother ball game.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I love that you went there because I think that, Regional and national market trends are so powerful. And, and I think that, well, I mean, both distributors and manufacturers have a, have an interesting spot here, but I think that if I know nationally how certain fireplaces or certain market segments are doing and regionally, where, hey, in the Portland metro area, we're seeing that gas inserts are up 20%. That is so valuable for me to know that because I can gauge, hey, am I up 20%? Am I up more than that? How am I doing compared to the rest of my market? I think that a distributor can offer a ton here because they've got multiple lines. So they can say across the board, "Our, our, our wood stoves up, our gas inserts up in the Spokane area or in the Pacific Northwest. I think that this is data that's really powerful for even just accountability purposes where I think that there's a lot of companies sometimes that think, oh, hey, we're doing just fine. But really they're not in line with what the rest of the market is doing. I think that distributors, manufacturers have a ton they can offer dealers with that.
1: Yeah. And I think when you know, when you say data, I think I get overwhelmed. I think I overthink it. When you say trends, you know, I think that makes sense to me. I, I wanna know what the trends are, the data behind the trends. Like take for example, uh, what's gonna go on this fall and winter. Are we gonna have an insane season? Is the demand up? Is the demand going crazy? The answer is yes. How many of your manufacturers, how many distributors are helping you with that information? To me, none. Zero. I am searching for information, asking a million questions, and I'm not offered up anything unless I ask. But they all have it, and when asked, they have boatloads of information to give away. But right now, we're gonna we're gonna have a, the demand of a season of a lifetime. I truly believe and I believe there's going to be some industry store in industry shortages. And so, you know, I think there's a balancing act on scaring scaring the dealers but giving them tangible information to make the best decisions now so that you as a distributor aren't left hanging later is a huge deal. And uh, I mean, that's an example that I think of in more of tr- a trend that's going on than data given to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. So, so I think that, yeah, Casey, To your point, I know that you guys do a ton for your dealers. I would just be thinking about how do I put together, put it together in a plan where, Hey, this is the information. And now you need to go do ABC and then also push into your market knowledge that you really have a deep understanding that a lot of people don't freely share. You know, I think about like Every month in the industry magazines, it just drives me crazy. You you, you have these reports on like checking in with the industry and they ask every single VP of sales or sales manager for every manufacturer, how are you doing this year? And it's always like, oh, we're having a strong year or sales are pretty good this year. and And I'm like, I mean sales are not pretty good for everybody all the time. They're just not. But I think that to be able to honestly share with your customers, Hey, this is where we're up. This is where we're down is going to give them the ability to focus and to push into where the market's going.
1: You're so right. I mean, honestly, Tim, me as a dealer, I think my sales reps get so annoyed because, and they probably call me less, which is maybe (laughs) good because every time I am on the phone with a sales rep, I'm saying, what is going on in your area? Where is that happening? Who is doing what? Okay, they're out 10 weeks. Do they have one installation crew, two installation crews, three installation crews? I am constantly searching for that information. So, Casey, I think your question is extremely relevant. Giving information quarterly, timely, and like Tim's saying, just simple Sim- there's just simply what, you know, we don't know. And sharing what you already know is a big deal. Whether you're up or down in gas appliances, pellet appliances, wood appliances, outdoor, I think it's hugely beneficial and maybe even adding why, why yeah. you think.
0: That's so good. Okay. Let's go to the next one. So this question actually came up in our last fire time network, happy hour call and grant. Uh, this is so good. I'm going to kick it to you. Here's the question. We all learn these great ideas on the podcast. First of all, thank you for that compliment. How do we actually make them happen?
1: Oh, how long do we have? <laughs> I mean, it's so difficult to answer that question on the surface. I would, I would go back to kind of something that we preach, uh, a cadence of accountability in being able to grow um, and nurture you know, your productivity. And so what I would say is start with a weekly meeting. It depends on how big you are, the, the type of company, but some type of cadence of a meeting with, with an objective to grow what you're focused on. And this is what I'll say. You have to let fires burn. Yes. If you're just starting out, there's too much to work on. It's too overwhelming. And one of the things that I excelled at is I just push things to the side. I'll never forget taking over the business and looking at our business and saying, okay, we sell hot tubs, we sell fireplaces, and we sell barbecues. The first thing I did was take a 12 months analysis and say, hot tubs are gone. Then I focused on fireplaces because that's where the cream of the crop was. We just weren't efficient in it. And I let barbecues go. I ignored my barbecues rep- reps for two years because I had to focus on the nucleus of our company. But I did that through a cadence of meetings, weekly meetings, so that we continue to build. We didn't lose our train of thought. We had a documented um, record of what we did each week, and we continued to push and work towards that. I think that if you, if you expect to get better, or expect to scale or grow your business without having some type of cadence of accountability, and I keep saying that, but weekly meetings or some type of way to nurture that growth it's really difficult. And I have a bunch of people that I respect that have great companies that don't actually meet with their teams. And it's, it's a difficult thing for me to understand because the answer's there. Yeah. You have to meet continually to, to grow and nurture something that you want to do.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that execution is the name of the game. And the deeper that I get into this, and Grant, you know, we've talked about this. The battle for most businesses is not knowing the right thing to do. It's having the focus to do it. And Peter Drucker talks about how focus is the number one indicator of success in business. It really is that having the ability to focus and that, to your point, means that if I am focusing on this, I'm not focusing on other things. And that means that fires are going to burn. You know, Gary Keller talks about if if you want to be an amazing CEO – get comfortable with fires burning. If you're able yep. to go to sleep every single night feeling like you've got everything taken care of, you're not doing a good job because it means that you're probably, you know, spread too thin. You're you're probably not focusing on the big wild things that are going to grow your business. What I think about is this is, you know, it goes back to the to the theme of the podcast, right? Like slow is fast. Yeah. That you get all this great information and it takes time and you and oh. you as the business owner have to decide Okay, I've got five great things that I learned from Grant last week. Which one am I going to start with? And I'm ignoring yep. everything else until I've got this one in place. And I know for me, sometimes like you got to get outside your business to be able to think about this. Like Oh, you're
1: so right, Tim.
0: Grant, I I called you the other day because I was on a walk. So like I took 4 hours with nothing on my plate and I just went for a long walk and I listened to a 45 minute podcast I had a notepad and I just started journaling ideas for the future of wi-fi and 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 it's easy to feel guilty doing that because you're not quote unquote working but the truth is that if you're actually going to try and execute on an idea that you learned in this podcast or an article or a book you got to step out for however long it takes 2 hours a half day a full day and you got to make a game plan of okay if I want to do this how are we going to do it? What's the cadence of accountability? Who's in charge? How are we going to do this? And then you got to go in and you got to do it. I mean, I think that this is where success is really boring. I mean, success is like, it's a, it's a, it's a slog that's like slow and it's painful. It's not glamorous. And yeah, I've, I've heard people say that the reason that, that most folks aren't successful is because they can't handle the monotony of success. And I think that's the truth if you're going to execute on an idea.
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, Tim, it goes back to hard is easy and easy is hard. So when we have choices like starting a meeting or starting diving into one thing and doing it and letting fires burn is is hard. You feel like you're neglecting. You feel like you're uh, not being responsible. You feel like everybody around you, every business owner has it figured out and is able to do that when none of us are. I think as a business owner or general manager, whatever your position is, I mean, if you're responsible for your company, you really have to make tough decisions. Some decisions that make you feel lazy because you're pushing them off to other people. Some, some decisions that make you feel inept, like you're, you're doing something wrong, like letting a fire burn. But when you, like you said, focus is the most, most the biggest deal. And I remember like a couple of years ago, I'm like, what am I doing I'm just riding along with this company, just, you know, trying to figure everything out, but I have no time to solve problems. I have no time to help people. I have no time to do these things that I needed to do. And, and once you start to make those hard decisions, Tim, those decisions we all know are true. Like running a meeting, I'm talking to every business owner and GM right now, run weekly meetings, Yes. like do it. And I don't care how bad they are. I mean, I'll never, I'll never forget listening to some podcasts and and the most, the best podcasts are when they, they're real and they say, no one has it figured out. We're always figuring out what we do. You have to have meetings and they aren't perfect at first, as long as you have intention. But if you have a regular focus on one thing or two things, you will get those things done. And what we all do as business people is we have a million great ideas. And like you said at the beginning, the question is, how do we take these ideas and run with them? You focus on one, you knock it out, and then you focus on the next one. You knock it out, and you focus on the next one. And the thing is, is it takes you a lot longer. And what what you actually believe in your mind is that this is taking forever. This is not worth it. And the only difference is that you're not letting anything go when you have weekly meetings that are focused. I mean, I'm as crazy as saying agendas and meeting minutes need to go along with that. But when we started this seven years ago, Tim, we started out with a heartbeat report that gave us everything about our business, the weather, how many units we sold, how much we installed. And then we went into every Tuesday management meeting. At that time, we had less than 20 employees and there was four people that would meet every week so that we can continue to build on what we had. And that was seven years ago. Now we have department meetings, store meetings, stand-up meetings, like you've heard me talk about in the past. And that is how we solve problems. Today, I had an 8am meeting, a a 10am meeting, a 12pm meeting, a 1pm meeting, and a 2.30 meeting. I did literally nothing else other than meet. And after every meeting today, I swear I thought, how would I do this job without these? Yeah, these schedule my productivity and I focus on the important stuff at these meetings and everything else comes secondarily. I can't speak to meetings enough and I understand they have to be intentional, but you you have to meet regularly in order to get things done.
0: So good. So good. Okay, I'm going to tee you up with another one here. So this is from Jake Hawkins in Haley, Idaho. And he jumps in and is a question about service. He says, we've always done service by the hour with the thoughts of changing it to a job-by-job basis, but haven't been able to figure out good numbers for the different standard services. I'd be curious to know what dealers are charging for things like valve replacements, pilot assemblies, replacements, etc., As we sat down to figure out a new flat rate fee, it always seems like we're back to the, well, how much time would it take? And then we multiply it by our hourly rate. So I think that this is a great question, just diving into if you're a business that's thinking about making that transition to flat rate service from hourly, where would you start?
1: I would start with what your process is. So the first thing I think that's wrong with the hearth retailers that do service is that they have their most knowledgeable service person on the phone. And I would say that's the wrong choice. Get the person that knows the least that can schedule that can be good at customer service and let the service manager deal with the problems, deal with the text, deal with other things, but don't have them scheduling because they're going to solve problems. They're going to diagnose over the phone and they're, then they're going to say it's a so-and-so blower and it's going to be this amount, which is a guess. They don't, they don't know that, but that's what they say. That's what we had when I when I first stepped into this business. I think you have to think about like how car mechanics work or how people that are in the, the service industry and they work on a diagnostic and repair. So forget flat rate, forget it. Who cares? Flat rate is, all flat rate is, is how much time does it take to replace plus the retail price or whatever price you want. That's all it is. So I would say put together a spreadsheet of the the 50 most, replaced parts that you service, estimate the time, and have that as a flat rate repair cost. But the important part is for everybody to understand the four steps. The first step is the customer contacts you. The second step is setting up the schedule and making sure that the customer understands our process. Our process is there's no way to know what your fireplace is doing without us coming out and testing everything on it. We go through whatever. I mean, people say 17 point, 21 point, whatever it is. It ends up being about 12 things that you have to check on a fireplace properly outfit your salespeople with a mega meter, not just an Ohm meter. And you will have success. You can test insulation on every single motor on that system. And if you set it up where there's a process of diagnostic, where instead of your tech saying what he thinks it may be over the phone or what he thinks it may be by fiddling with it a little bit and what the service manager said, he goes through a detailed checklist that then he marks where it's at on the scale of 1 to 100. Every single thing on that fireplace has a a 0 and a 100 and a replacement level somewhere in there. Every service manager probably knows what that replacement level is because they've been doing it forever. All we got to do is put it on a piece of paper, mark an X saying it's close to replacement level, and then have a conversation with the customer about potentially replacing it and proposing a repair that is a fixed price so the customer doesn't think they're on the hook if you aren't able to do the service. If you give them an hourly quote, it's unknown they will say no nine times out of 10 because it's anywhere from $100 to $1,000 in their mind. Now, you know, it might end up about $400 and that you won't jip them or, or take, take advantage of them, but they don't know that. When we converted over to the flat rate where it's diagnostic, ours is 169 for a diagnostic. And then whatever the flat rate repair is, we don't give the diagnostic back because the customer pays for the diagnostic, but that diagnostic and that checklist that we share with the customer is the reason we repair more in the off season than we ever have. And we have less untimely breakdowns in the season. The customer earns for a flat rate repair process. You just have to figure out how to do it. And it's just as simple as getting together with your team, putting a spreadsheet together, and then coming up with how you handle it as a diagnostic and repair, diagnostic and repair. If you repair something and a customer says no to it, And they call back two months later. They're paying for another diagnostic. If you go out to a customer's house and you don't repair, you don't propose a repair. You say it's all good, and three months later, in the season, they call you. Chances are you're paying for that diagnostic. It doesn't matter what you what you choose to repair. It doesn't matter fan, thermopile, thermocouple, whatever. They have no idea what it is. They just know they said no. And more times than not, if you put the customer in the position with the information, not what you said, but what's on that paper, and they see it's close to replacement level, and you give them a repair, I will say that nine times out of 10, they're going to say yes. And and maybe it's not nine times, eight, seven to, seven to eight times out of 10. And I can't tell you how often our team is stopped at the door. I bet you it's five times a week where they're stopped at the door, and we kind of laugh about it. Say, okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. We we need to get it done. I don't want this. No one wants to know that there's a problem. No wife or husband wants to get blamed for it going down in the season. There is a way to do this. And it's a fixed cost repair type of system.
0: Oh, so good. I mean, I, I think that we just got a one for one follow the car model. I mean, like you referenced, yeah. right? I mean, yep. if if something in my car breaks and I call up the shop, I I pay a diagnostic fee. I they they say yep. hey this is what 150 bucks, 250 bucks whatever it is to diagnose it. And whenever I go in, they always bring out the piece of paper and it's got the checklist on it with the green, yellow, red and they say hey Tim, here's where your brakes are. You know, this is good brakes, these exactly. are bad brakes, this is where you fall. This is where your fuel pump is. This is where and and when I when I go to say replace my fuel pump, they don't say, well, you know, it's uh, it's going to be we charge $300 an hour, but it's in 15 minute increments. And, you know, so we, we, we think a fuel pump will usually be an hour and 15 minutes, but sometimes sometimes it's two and a half hours just
1: because I I'm just lost all ne- confidence now, in that.
0: Yeah. Now, now I'm thinking, well, wait, OK, how long does it take to replace a fuel pump? And I, I mean, I don't know. I'm starting to but like my brain is going to a place that's not helpful. It's better for me. And this is why they figured this out. They say, hey, the fuel pump costs 450 bucks to replace. Do you want to take it or leave it? that's a better customer experience for me. It's it's cleaner and neater for them. And we got to run our service the same way.
1: And it's rare that things are both beneficial for the company and the customer in this situation. It is. Yeah. We all know that flat rate, re, flat rate repair diagnostic and repair is the way to go. There's, there's simple ways to go, but we, we get this, like all this in our head. Like it has to be all these things. We have to have every part figured out. You just have to have a system in place but if you quote an hourly, like when I was listening to you just talk about that, honestly, if you're a professional at what you do, you should know exactly how long it's going to co- like take. Oh, yeah. And the, the amazing thing is, is it's a, a flat rate repair cost. So sometimes we go out to calls that are a warranty or a call back that are really quick. Let's say we didn't propose any type of repair and two weeks later there's something wrong. We know that these fireplaces maybe haven't been touched for a few years, and as soon as you touch them, there's obvious, there's these problems that happen or come about. And so you go out there, and you can't charge the customer, but you can build that $65 just to cover that cost into the next repair before you propose it. So if something did happen, like the fan, it, was tested, it tested good three weeks earlier, and then it tests bad this time, that's difficult to recover money to go back out there to test that out, right? But it does happen. You just build that $65 trip charge into the flat rate repair. The customer is still okay with it because it's a fixed rate and they're covering the cost. And, and then sometimes you guys, you drive an hour to get there and you can't charge for that hour. You charge for it there, but maybe not back. There's ways you can work in the, the the whole day being billed for your guys. So there is a ton of flexibility and ultimately the customer has confidence because you're giving them a fixed price.
0: Yeah. I love it. Okay. So I want to jump into a question here from Jenna Golden. So Jenna is in Pennsylvania and she works for Salters out there. Jenna's been a fan of the podcast and it's been awesome getting to know her. She has a few questions I'm going to read here. She says, we want to know the style trends for hearth products and finishes just like we get for patio furniture. We want to know the types of demographics to market to based on product category, ideas of promotions that we can run throughout the year to capture sales, things like pellet early buys, service deals, et cetera. Are the manufacturers not getting consumer leads? So she's saying that, you know, we want this information. We'd love to use it. Why aren't the manufacturers giving it to us?
1: Yeah, Tim, I'm going to let you take this one.
0: (laughs) Oh, I might get in trouble. I know you're chomping at the bit. (laughs) I might get in trouble for my answer here. You know, um...
1: never stopped you before buddy i know
0: i i think that um i think that most manufacturers again it goes back to the fact i think i think most manufacturers have have lost touch of of who their customer is both in the sense of of who their dealer is that's directly buying from them and who their homeowner is that's buying through their dealer and i think that many manufacturers are operating just like retailers where they're flying by the seat of their pants. Now that's not true of all of them. There's, there's some terrific companies that that are working much more systematically, but I think that sometimes manufacturers, it's like oversight, you know, they wouldn't even think to say, Oh, here's an idea for a quarterly sale that you could run. You know, here's an idea for something in the off season. Here's, you know, we've seen this market research come through and we think that stainless steel is going to be really big this year. I think that there's just not a lot of thought put into that.
1: Who's, who's the best at, at getting consumer leads and why?
0: Well, okay. So I I think I'm going to, I'm going to hit consumer leads in in two different ways. So I think that there's market trends and then there's consumer leads. So I think that Jenna's kind of asking both like the, the product finishes and choices that that's kind of like market trends, almost like Casey's question earlier. Consumer leads is a hot button issue for me. And I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question, Graham, but I'm going to do it in a roundabout way. Consumer leads is a really, really big deal. And, and we, we've talked about this and we actually, we actually had a little disagreement in the firetime network about what's the number one thing a manufacturer needs to do for their customers. And I said, provide their dealers leads you said make it easy which is you know taking the words out of my mouth but i I think if i if i had to make it a choice as as a manufacturer you know making a good product that that's the cost of doing business so that doesn't count it's just assume that you make a good product once you make a good product though i truly believe if you're a manufacturer Getting your dealers leads is the most important thing you can do for a lot of reasons. One is it'll build loyalty with your dealers. Being able to give your dealers leads that make them money will force their hand into loyalty. Number two is that this will actually protect your company from being flipped. So one of the things that manufacturers in our industry largely don't understand is that in most cases, it's the dealer that makes the product, not the manufacturer. So when someone comes into Falco's to buy a fireplace, at the end of the day, that consumer doesn't give a flying hoot if they're buying a brand X or a brand Y or a brand Z. They have no idea. Yep. It doesn't matter. It's, it's Falco's that actually makes yep. those brands mean something. Yep. And so because of that, as a manufacturer, I'm just being honest here, you cannot count on your dealers not flipping the product to what's easiest to sell. Totally. So if you're yeah. a high-end manufacturer and maybe someone comes to your website and sees a linear fireplace and they walk into a local dealer, they're not thinking about your brand. They're thinking, I saw a cool linear fireplace. And the dealer might know that there's one that's less expensive or there's less friction to sell. And I'm telling you guys, this gets flipped all the time. So as a manufacturer, you have to capture that lead and you got to get them excited about your brand so that your brand becomes what they want, not just a linear fireplace. And this is where I'm going to answer the question. I I will truly say this grant. um, I'm thinking of four manufacturers off the top of my head that are big players in the industry. And I'm not joking, dude, they could hire me and you as a consultant and we could increase their sales by 50% next year. By putting a download a coupon button yeah. in the top right hand corner of their page, like that—that's no exaggeration. Yeah, manufacturers. That, I mean, there's one manufacturer that understands consumer leads, and I'm—I I'm, mean, you guys know who we it know who is. it is. I but, mean, there's you know, Tim.
1: Like the coupon thing is is an amazing thing, and it's funny because obviously it's worked because a lot of manufacturers copy it. But like when I'm thinking about you talking about this and driving leads. There's so many things manufacturers can do. If they understand our consumer and they understand the things that hold them up, couldn't they do pop-ups on their website that say the five things you need to know about buying a fireplace, the things no one tells you about buying a pellet stove, click here, (laughs) information here. like." there's there's nothing done to actually collect that lead other than coupons and that's the the mystery to me and i'm not saying that i have it figured out but driving leads is so important and there really is pretty easy ways to get it right oh my gosh
0: yeah i mean like the coupon is low hanging fruit right i mean put a yeah. coupon on your website capture a name and email address now here's the thing though leads must go in real time to their dealers and that's the reason i say that there's only one manufacturer that yep. understands this because yep. With other manufacturers that mess around with leads, and and there's manufacturers literally I fill the lead thing out like once a week for them, and I just wait for someone to call me, and it's always like a week and a half after I fill it out, I get a random sales rep calling me being like, "Hey uh, what what part of town are you in?" or i mean it, it, it's, it's terrible that right that when you fill out the information on the lead, that needs to go instantly to the best dealer in the area so that they can start moving on it to, to try to filter it through your sales reps. You may as well not take that information. It just makes the customer upset. So, so leads is so important. And Jenna, to your point, I will say that, that most manufacturers aren't, they don't, they don't value leads. You know, if you think about this, when a consumer starts their journey, right? Like think about if I'm going to buy a car, I'm not, going to Bob's Toyota or Bob's BMW of Portland website to start my search. Like I'm going to Toyota's website or Honda or BMW. I'm going to the manufacturer's website to research for my vehicle. By the time I make it to the local dealer's website, I've already done my research. Now as a manufacturer, you've got to realize that you are getting exponentially more web traffic than your dealers and you cannot rely on, on the dealer locator as enough. You can't do it. You got to capture that lead. Send the customer two, three, four emails as a follow-up campaign to get them excited about your brand. Give them something that separates you from the competition. I'm telling you, BTUs and whatever information's in your brochure does not separate you from the competition. If you can give them a coupon, send the customer a couple emails on their behalf, get that lead to the dealer, then you
1: can start to make some noise. Tim, I couldn't agree more. Everything that you said there is so important, and you know, I, it's it's shocking to me how little it happens.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. We just talked about this in the marketing episode, but I mean, I'm I'm just telling you, like, if you're a local dealer listening to this, put put a coupon generator on your website. Make a free PDF just like Grant, you know, like you said, you know, three ways that a wood stove saves you money when you're off the grid, you know, four ways that a pellet stove keeps your family safer than ever, like whatever it's called, come up with a valuable piece of content that people want to give you an email address for and then start marketing to them that, that, you know. What I found through some of the companies that I've worked with during the COVID crisis is even though showrooms have been shut down because we have you know automatic estimate generators and email follow-up campaigns and coupons and things like that, they were able to stay relevant and keep things moving with their customers even in the midst of the pandemic and their showrooms being shut down. So leads is a hot-button issue for me, and, and Jenna, I, I guess to go to your question, I would say that most manufacturers, no, are not getting consumer leads. They're not. Okay, Grant, I want to go to a question here. Okay, there's two questions and you only get to pick one because we're, we're short on time and I want to get to everything here. Okay, so I'm going to read you both of them and you get to pick one. The first question is, Grant, how do you train someone as a utility person to handle several facets of your business? That's question one. Here's question two. Do other retailers have their salespeople as project managers where they're handling the sale, revising the quote after a site visit, figuring out the finish work, setting up installation, and collecting the balance? You get to pick one of those two. Which one is it?
1: I'm going to pick both. (laughs) But I'm going to answer the first one short. So, like, the first one's easy for me. Grant, how do you train someone as a utility person to do, handle several facets of your business? You create a checklist. So like I'm checklist crazy. Every department has some type of KPI or checklist. Now with ground, it's Monday, certain obligations, Tuesday, certain obligations, all the way to Saturday. And and I have it where I can hire a guy, I can show him around for five days a week through the, his superior. And then all of a sudden he knows what to do and knows what's expected. And the most amazing thing about it is you know, what's getting done and what's not getting done. So calls in sick on a Tuesday, but he got a lot of stuff and even some stuff on Tuesday done. You know that on Wednesday, he's got to get the Wednesday stuff and some of the Tuesday stuff done or through the week, he's got to get that figured out. And every week, like we've gotten to the point where we recorded as a percentage. So we, I know that like this week, I think our grounds team was at about 94% on completed checklists. So getting a checklist, taking out what is in your brain with what needs to happen, clean the bathrooms on this day, empty garbages twice a week, You know, dumpsters been taken out this time, You know, recycle run, et cetera. It all has to be put on. Once you have the list, it's not going to be perfect at first. It doesn't have to be perfect when you start it. You just build on it. And it's pretty invaluable once you have a regular routine or utility person. But also with that, you have to have projects. So we all have projects. I have a Louis Falco, my father, who it's always given us more projects to work on because we're never busy enough. But we have to manage <laughs> those projects. So we have one through however many projects, and we're constantly adjusting and making sure that we understand what are the most important. And from one week to the other, they change. But a checklist is how you train a utility person. Sorry, so it took you a little
0: bit longer. Now, now online. On. Week- okay, I'm going to stop you. I know. I know yeah. that I said we got to go quick. So let's say that this utility person is also going to be learning to be an install helper and maybe do some yeah. service work. Is that just part of the checklist?
1: So no, there's no training involved. So the utility person is a backup installer. So whenever an assistant installer is, is absent, which now more than ever, it seems to happen, unexpected absences on assistant installers or whatever, we have someone who's on the ground in the utility position to go fill that position. And he is designated as the backup assistant installer. What's amazing about that is our lead installers technically just need someone to hand them tools to clean up, to do certain things. And yes, as they grow their assistant, they'll be able to do much more. But it's an ability for the installers to see if they're going to be good out there and us to see how they handle going back and forth. And then when they come back, it tells you a ton do they get back to their job? Do they take their job seriously? But ultimately, they're a backup assistant and they train on the job. And it doesn't always work out, but every installer that I have currently working, four crews, eight people, they have all came in the utility position. Get every out single here. one of them. And they've been, no, they've been nurtured up through. That's the only way to grow. Like I hear all the time, I can't find installers. I can't find service tech. You have to nurture them. You have to make good, great. And checklists where you're not micromanaging them, but also knowing what they're doing, allow them to show you what they can do is amazing. And I think utility person is a perfect person because I get to see them, I get to manage them and I get to say, ah, they're going to be great out there. Yeah, I got some concerns. This is what my concerns are when I send them up there. It's a pretty amazing position. And we, we actually, every fall now have two utility people, one that is checklist centric and one that's project oriented, And they're both able to go out on assistant installs and hopefully they will be installers in the future. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, now to the second question, um, project managers. So that means a lot of different things. And so when I'm speaking about this, I'm thinking inside retail business, Tim, is that what we're talking about? Okay. So Tim and I have kind of two different methods here. And I think that, uh, both are good. Um, and I think it just depends on how you have it set up and the expectations that, that you have for your sales staff, your project manager and the customer. For me, managing expectations is the biggest thing. If you've taken my delivering the perfect installation, you know that we have seven steps to the perfect installation and it all starts with the sales process. We have four inside salespeople. They have certain obligations to pass it off to our project manager, our bid project manager. Our project manager goes out, bids the project, writes up the final number, they should always be quoted a ballpark number to qualify before going out there. They're graded on certain things like how they set up the story to to set up the the bid. And then Dwayne goes out there, tries to close it, either closes it or doesn't close it. And then the salespeople, it's passed back off. Your transition is key. If you do it as the salesperson is the project manager, my fear is that installers are a fickle group and they want their paperwork their message to be consistent. And if you're giving them four different messages each week, it's going to create frustration. And it doesn't mean anybody's doing it wrong, but if you're doing it different all the time, we never get in a rhythm. Dwayne Spurbeck, he's been with us as long as I've been born. He was the general manager before I was, and we took a swap. He went to bid manager, installation manager, and I went to general manager. Dwayne knocks it out of the park because he follows the system. We, we email back and forth. Like when he's done, we email a synopsis to the sales group to say, this is what you need to follow up. These are the key points. This was the good. This was the bad. I think it's a price issue. Let's do this. Set some up. And same thing when the sales set up bid for Dwayne, what are the customers interested? What are they thinking about? What are their pain points? We mark, like, is this a budget conscious purchase? Is this an ambiance and aesthetic uh, driven purchase? setting them up and managing the expectations from start to finish is key and doing it consistently. Now, Tim, you guys do project managing per salespeople per, per salesperson. How do you feel like that works?
0: Well, I've had a lot of time to think about this and I've come around to where I really believe that to have a salesperson as a they full loan project, project manager is a productivity crusher. Because I think that the more time a salesperson spends managing a project, the less time they're actually able to sell. And you think about like, what's the purpose of a salesperson? It's to sell. It is. It's not to manage a project. It's to sell. That doesn't mean that they can't take responsibility. It doesn't mean that there's, there's things in their job that don't just involve selling. But if you give your salespeople the duty and the follow-up of managing projects, it, it will crush them. And, 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 and you won't get any productivity out of them as a salesperson. That said, I think that there are things that they need to be responsible for. And Grant, your system's really good at this. I'm going down the list here. So it says, do other retailers have their salespeople as project managers where they, A, are handling the sale, Revising the quote after a site visit, figuring out finish work, setting up installation and collecting the balance, you know, handling the sale. Absolutely. That's on your salesperson. Revising the quote after a site visit, that's a salesperson function as well. Now I'm going to go on a caveat and say that when someone goes out for a site visit, they must present the customer a final number for the product that they're going out there to bid and ask if they want to get on the schedule. So that that doesn't have to be a salesperson. That's very often an estimator. But that estimator is going out to the project to look at something. So if they're going out to look at, you know, whatever brand, wood stove or, or gas fireplace, they need to write up an estimate for that project before they leave and ask if they want to get on the schedule if the customer says you know hey we're still thinking about it then it goes back to the salesperson because you're following up on it just like you would a normal sale and maybe the customer decides they want to change their fuel type or get a different model that's the salesperson that does those sales related tasks figuring out finish work i mean i think that salespeople can help with like What stone style are you going to choose? What mantle style? If you sell that, if you don't sell it, the salesperson doesn't touch it. But if you do sell it, you know, the salesperson can work with those fits and finishes, but it's going to be the estimator that actually does the measuring and figuring out exactly what quantities of products are going to be needed. You know, collecting the balance. That's not a salesperson thing. I mean, I I think that, you can involve a salesperson to help you with that. And I'm not against not paying commission until balances are paid. I'm not against that at all. But I think that to put that solely on your salespeople, it, it will crush their productivity. It'll, it'll kill their ability to sell more. Yeah. And I think the truth yeah. is if you've got a good system, like Grant, you can speak to this, collecting the balance is a non-issue. I, I've seen companies that have hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're trying to collect on and they're calling and calling and calling and it slows the company down to just a halt. But if you've got a good system, collecting shouldn't be an issue.
1: Yeah, it just comes down to managing expectations and everybody having their role. You know, figuring out finish work is not necessarily anybody's responsibility in our Hearth retailer, especially if you don't finish, if you don't sell the finish work, but it is our responsibility to let them know what finish work they can do with that appliance. Now, setting up the install, that is, you're asking for the job as a salesperson or even an estimator, but setting up the install, planning it, that is a support staff position and collecting the balance, collecting the balance must be done at the job. And it must be resolved before any installers leave. So, speaking about collecting the balance for us, we, you know, if you, if you t- have taken the delivering the perfect installation, seven step process is about managing expectations. And they know that on two or three times as we're going through this process, they know when the balance is collected. Now, Falco's does it a little bit differently. A lot of companies collect 50% down, they want the money more. up front or more. I don't understand that and I'm not (laughs) saying it's wrong, but I don't understand it. I mean, I'm a customer and I want it to be easy. I want it to be a very easy commitment and the deposit is the key. So if you make your deposit appealing, um, you have a higher chance of getting that sale. And once someone puts a deposit down, the chances of them canceling that are very slim to none. Why, Tim? Because people want it to be easy. Yeah, they want want to be done. Once they give you that deposit, they're like, oh. I can breathe. And you've already qualified them. Now, collecting the balance, if managed properly through the entire process, if the confirmation call reviews it, if the installer, when he first gets there, reviews the job, walks through the job, walks through the permit, walks through the payments, you never have any issue. And Tim, I can say in the seven years I've been doing this, I have never, I mean, I I think in like, I would say three to four, four times in the seven years that I've been running this company, have we ever had payment issues, but it, but it's irrelevant because I handle them where the installers are still there talking to the consumer. And if a consumer has uh, a complaint or a problem or a reason to withhold, I'll listen to it. And I'll let them withhold $300 or $200 and, um, but I won't let them withhold the $3,500 that they owe me because yeah. that thing's sitting in their home and I can't go get it. So I'll take off the door, I'll disassemble it, I'll do something that requires and let them know that there's going to be a charge to come back simply because we have fulfilled our obligation. It's not when the permit, I mean, how many times do I hear, you know, as we're going through the process, oh, so you'll you'll collect payment once I get it inspected? Mm-mm. No, I am doing it to the inspection to to what is going to pass code but it's up to you to get the inspection not me and so if you wait 3 months I'm not pay- getting paid that's that's absolutely not acceptable i set up expectations expect to be paid do the job and almost always get paid and our installers have an obligation to not leave that project until a, my, me or the installation manager have been in contact and help rectify the issue
0: i love it man that's so good okay I'm going to hit a couple more questions real fast. I think this one's really, really good. This comes from Danny Kaler in Medford, Oregon. Danny, he's the new president of the OHPBA. He's taken my job. And so I'm glad you wrote in, Danny. Okay. Good job, Danny. He says, since there are no big name hearth companies that the general public could name and the fact that most of our products are only purchased every 20 to 25 years, how do we change from a specs driven industry to a lifestyle industry? Tim, you've given us great insight to this, and I can't help but wonder how retailers, manufacturers, and distributors can work together to get the message out.
1: Hey, Tim, can I answer this before you do? Yeah. Just from my perspective? Yeah. Okay. So I think as a GM or as someone that is taking responsibility for the company, that everything on your product has to have a story. There has to be a reason you sell it. So we worry about specs, BTUs, and this, and that's not what consumers want. Consumers want safe. Consumers want comfort. Consumers want ease. And we have to figure out how these specs, features benefit the consumer. It's not up to the manufacturers. It is as much up to us. Every unit can be sold how you want it to. I can't tell you how many times we sell product that other people sell that they come back to us saying, why doesn't anybody else do that? You know, we sell simple appliances, but we talk about heat exchanger, ceramic glass, the safety pilot, little things that everybody else kind of grazes over when it's a benefit to the consumer. I think that it's super important when you buy a product to know why you're buying it. Why does it fit with what you do and how you sell to the customer? Everything we sell in our showroom is set up on a good, better, best. And is has a story behind it, whether it's standing pilot, simple, reliable, easy to service, um, works when power goes out, those things, or it's electric pilot on demand, which is called IPI or electronic ignition, but we call it pilot on demand, how it modulates the flames, keeps it at one degree of the temperature, how you sell it is the biggest deal. And everything in our showroom is goes from good, better, best, and all has to do with comfort. You don't have to do that same thing. You have to have your own story with the product. Now, Danny's question is how the manufacturer, but I want to say that it's, it's true. Like manufacturer is going to help and can help and will eventually help. And some do, but truly it's up to you to, to figure out the story in which you want to help that customer understand. We have two types of customers that buy gas inserts. One, that are a little bit older, want it simple, want it easy, never want it to go out. And that's a standing pilot hot unit. Then we have a younger age that wants all the bells and whistles, wants comfort, wants to be able to control everything from the remote. And so we sell both and we sell them with just as much veracity as we can until we understand what the customer is looking for. So I would say it's in the dealer's hand, but I know you have a better answer than that. Tim.
0: No, oh, no, that's great. It's a great spot to team me up. So from a manufacturer's perspective, this is where I would start. So I think that we as an industry have relied on volume, new construction work to grow our products. And I think that that's totally fine, but it's something that we just have to realize that there's a whole nother part of the market that we've left untapped. And that is existing customers who have bought our products. So when we want our products to be more lifestyle, I think that who we need to go after is existing customers. You know, when you think about the fact that our products are purchased every 25 years, like Danny's saying, and no one can name a single manufacturer It's super, super important that we are effective with our marketing. And so why are we marketing to the general public when most of them are never going to buy our products and they're not interested in our brands? Instead, what we should be doing is we should be investing heavily into remarketing to past customers who love our products. So Every manufacturer has got a list of retail customers, right? So if you're if you're a manufacturer, throw out your track home new construction customers and take your pure retail customers. Those are customers that spent their hard-earned dollars on your mid to high-end products and they're in their personal houses. I would invest heavily into email marketing campaigns, into direct mail initiatives and turn them into an army of ambassadors, right? So if I'm going to roll the dice and, and blow my whole marketing budget on... You know, just hitting the general public, hoping that people buy fireplaces—I don't think that's going to work very well. Most of the people probably aren't, no matter how good your marketing is. Instead, if we go back through our customer list, we can probably find what fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, a half million. If you're you're a bigger company people over the last five, 10 years that have bought your products, why not turn them into brand ambassadors? Because chances are that they already love having a fireplace in their house. You know, I think a company that's done this really well is like Big Green Egg or Traeger or Kamado Joe, like for barbecues, right? I mean, Grant, like you sold me a Traeger, what, a month and a half ago, dude. And I am telling everybody about my Traeger because I love it. It makes my life better. It's easy. All these things, you know, I've had a Big Green Egg before. It's the same thing there. I think that we have to realize that we got to create this army that, that relying on new construction track home growth. Well, of course, yeah, that's a spreadsheet sale for the top 25 builders. Like good luck. If you're going to win it, I hope you do. I'm not against that. But what I am saying is that we have an army of people that will champion our products that I think we've largely ignored. So I think that what we can do as an industry is I think that a manufacturer can step up to the plate and draw, Up a a blueprint, and I don't think this is infringing any antitrust laws or anything like that. But a manufacturer could drop a blueprint and say, "Look, you know, we're going to recommend targeting our last ten years worth of retail customers. We're going to create an email marketing campaign that is fifteen emails deep, just talking about how awesome fireplaces are and what they can do for their friends and family. And we're going to invest twenty five thousand dollars into direct mail pieces with." coupon offerings or, or different things like that. And that can be a blueprint that's given to every manufacturer and, and just say, Hey, who who else is going to step up to the challenge? I think that something like that is the way that you turn the tide here.
1: Tim, you talk about direct mail a lot. <laughs> I do, but it seems so simple and so easy. And if you're saying it's beneficial and productive, then Why aren't manufacturers doing it? Is it just that it's it seems too simple, and obviously it it couldn't work, or or what?
0: I don't think that they they knew who their customer is. I mean, I I think that this goes back to in our in our conversation from last week, we said that there's there's people that are paid to quote do marketing, and I don't like that. I don't want to do marketing. I want to I want to help you get an ROI, and 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 I think that when you're paid to do marketing. You start thinking about like, well, what's really creative? Like, what's a great slogan for our company? Like, what could we, what's a good color for our logo? I'm like, dude, I don't care about like, like when we're a $2 billion company, a household name, and everybody knows who we are, then we can start talking about that. But until we're at that point, we got to, we got to start solving people's problems. And and if I've got a marketing budget, I mean, if you're a manufacturer, I don't know what your marketing budget is. Maybe it's a million bucks a year or, or, you know, give or take. If I've got if I've got a, a chunk of money and I've got the choice of all the things out there, you know, doing national advertising campaigns or or uh, dealer co op or all these things. I mean, there's all all kinds of things that you can spend your money on. If you've got a list of people that have already purchased your products and chances are that they love them, I think that is a huge opportunity for repeat business and referral business that no one is tapping into. And honestly, dude, that's where I'm going
1: yeah Tim, you're so right. I mean, the chances are they've moved, they've moved on, they've done something different, and even if you're marketing to them and they have the appliance that the dealer sold to them just five years ago, having it be top of mind and there for referral basis and all that stuff is such an advantage uh, and I think like I think a lot of manufacturers are probably looking at themselves right now and saying, "Whoa, we have all this." consumer information that we can utilize and we never use it i mean that's what you're saying right utilize the stuff that you have yeah uh, target customers that you have have that already trust you that already believe in your products and and, uh and send them to your dealers oh my my gosh
0: yeah i mean if anyone wants to to get a book on this go read the thank you economy by gary vaynerchuk it's it's unbelievable but like the whole premise of the book is like do things for your past customers and let them grow your business. I mean, and and I mean, think about like I'm just going to go back to this Traeger example because that's on my mind. But like, so yeah. so the Traeger that you sold me is like a, it's a pretty high end grill. So what if what if Traeger decides that they want to grow their market share, and so like, why do people buy high end grills to show off food for their friends, right? So so what would happen if Traeger goes through their list of you know their their top end grills, they target them. And, and let's just say like one out of 50, they just randomly decide to send a hundred dollar gift card for a local meat market. Like what if I just got a hundred bucks in the mail from Traeger just saying, Hey Tim, we hope you love your grill. Here's a gift card for your local meat market and invite some friends over and enjoy your grill. I mean like, dude, you think I'm going to totally. do that? And like, you think that that's not built in marketing? Like it's a no brainer. And and you could say, well, you can't afford to spend a hundred bucks a customer. I get it. You can't afford to spend a hundred bucks a customer, but there's certain customers that you can. And there's all kinds of things you can do like that in small and big ways that have built in marketing as a part of it. So like when you do these campaigns, you got to make it like the fax machine. Seth Godin talks about like the first person to ever get a fax machine. Like, Life sucks for them. The purpose of a fax machine is that it gets better as more people have it. You can turn your marketing campaigns into this. Make your marketing campaigns work by doing more marketing out of it. Like Traeger sends me that $100 you know, meat market gift certificate. That's got built-in marketing because I'm going to invite my friends and family over and they're going to see me cooking really? on the grill. That's the viral effect that you want this to be.
1: And it makes you a follower, a believer, someone that wants to be a part of something that's Traeger or whatever. And and Tim, as you're telling that story, I think about you know three or four years ago, uh, Traeger found me through Instagram, Falco Barbecue, and they sent me an Ironwood 885 for free. I mean, it wasn't correlated to the dealership. This was a social media account. They had made 300, 100 Pro Series, 100 Ironwoods, and 100 Timberlines that they beta tested for a full year with a group of people. And what's amazing about it is that relationship never stopped. So I felt a part of something pretty special. I got a, a $1,200 grill for free. They, uh, they, they needed stuff from us, so we gave them information, but they had Wi-Fi so they could check everything that was going on with us. What was amazing about it is about three months after we, I did this all and I got the grill for free, then, we, then they sent me an insulated jacket. Then they sent me a cover. Then they sent me a front shelf. Not all at the same time. It was like every other month I was getting something new and Traeger was constantly showering me with stuff that made me evangelical about Traeger. And I believe Traeger is the best at what you're talking about in the thank you economy. I mean, they, I feel like could write a book on what they've done and how they've grown such a following. Now you have, it's polarizing. They have their people that hate them and people that love them. But Traeger really has done an exceptional job of marketing to their customers and keeping that following engaged to where like my brother worked for Pit Boss and he just hates it. He'll be at a Costco working at Costco and and selling for Pit Boss who he has in a grill. And what will the kids say as he walks up to the pellet grill? Oh, is this like a Traeger? Hey Hey dad, that's a Traeger. And it just kills him every time. And it's, that's what Traeger has done. They've, they've developed a following with weekly newsletters, different things that they give away constantly. And they're just, they're really good at it.
0: Yeah, that's so good. Okay. We're going to end with this one last question. So this, this comes from an unnamed sales rep grant that we both know and love. We're going to protect the names of the innocent here, but I think that this is a, a really good question to end on. So this sales rep says as a sales professional in distribution, I like to have all my birds in a row when I visit my dealers. I was at the retail level in the past, and I wanted some facts and good intel on products. Now I call ahead to schedule my visits. I have detailed sales figures ready for them, co-op available, and product updates on their product lines. I feel prepared when I walk in to see them. But here's the kicker. Many of them don't care. They're just happy to be ticking along, getting what they can business-wise. Up, down, no biggie. Here's the question. Is it worth the effort to try and motivate them? Or is time better spent working with the select ones who want to make a difference?
1: Yeah. So I'll start and I'll let you kind of round it out, Tim. First of all, when I, I heard this, I just understood the question is coming to two individuals that work for a retail company that also decided to do more than just work for that retail company. I think That's foreign to me and that's sad. And I hope that truly is not the case too often. With that said, I think there's a few things. Yeah. Asking them what they need is one thing, but some of them don't know what they need. Sometimes you have to figure out who the person is before they understand who they are. So what I would say is ask the question of what are their goals? What are they trying to do at their business? What are they trying to get out of that year? And if the questions are as vague as what you're talking about, I truly believe that your time is better spent on someone that's going to value what you bring to the table. I think that it shocks me. But if that's the case where time and time again, you come prepared, you're ready to help them, you've asked the questions, you understand them, and yet they're still not signing on or willing to try to get better, I feel like you have to spend your time with the people that are. It's going to pay yourself back tenfold um where you might be spinning the wheels in the other case.
0: I agree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that you got to go where the bread is being buttered. Yeah.
1: And the truth is that
0: you want to be gracious to everybody and every customer has value, but the truth is that your time is a fixed commodity that that is is limited and there's only so much of it. And if, if you think about as a sales rep, you know, you're making investments in companies. Like I think about the reps, like, you know, we've had Kip Rumans and Ed Hozak and, and Deb Hannig on the show that have made huge investments in me over the years, teaching me how to sell and all these things. I I think that if, if you've got, you know, good soil to plant seeds in, spend your time there. And if that soil is, you know, rocky and, and dried up, like don't I I, I wouldn't mess with it. I mean, I I think that I would even be honest with your dealers too about, Hey, I'd spend more time with you, but I got to have X, Y, Z in return. I think that that's just a fair relationship. And I think that if dealers, if you're coming in that prepared and, and dealers don't care, I would imagine that doubling down on the time spent with your better dealers is going to grow them exponentially more than, you know, the little bit that you'll get with these, with these dealers that are, you know, that are donkeys. Dave Ramsey talks about the difference between donkeys and thoroughbreds. And the truth is like, you know, it, it's going to be really tough. If a dealer has been a donkey for 25 years, it's hard to make them a thoroughbred. It's, it's hard to make them want it. And I think that the the truth is, I mean, from all the stuff we've talked about in this podcast, I would say that most hearth businesses have immense capacity to grow. There's not many companies that have faced a constraint where they're truly at the top of their market capability and efficiency. You know, Falco's might be getting close, but I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's many, there's many companies that are, that are even asking that question. So, so with that being said, I think that I'm just gonna throw out some numbers. I mean, I I think that if you've got a dealer, that's a $1.5 million dealer, but they're hungry, you could take, you could help take them to a $4 million company over two to three years, as opposed to maybe you've got a $2 million dealer, but they're just kicking tires. They're just riding it out. I would spend your time with a smaller dealer that's hungry. And, and, you know, just be honest with, with your bigger dealer, like, Hey, I'm, I'm happy to come by and this is the time that you'll get from me. But unless I can see you buy into what we're talking about, there's only so much time I can spend.
1: Yeah. And sometimes playing that card or saying no, or not being as available creates a demand for you too. So it's like,
0: it's like buying a car, you know, I mean, if, if you ask for a discount and the car guy goes, Oh yeah, I I think I can give you 500 bucks off. Then what do you you ask for another one? Like, like, it's not until you, it's not until you get a no that you actually know that you're, you're getting, you know, the right kind of deal. I mean, I mean, saying no gives you credibility and professionalism.
1: Yeah. You know, as you were telling that story, Tim, I, I think of a, a specific rep that I am going to name because I think that um, you named a few that have given you a lot and uh, Art Ratcliffe has, has given me yeah so much and he doesn't even realize. I talked to him like, you taught, <laughs> taught me that. He's like, I did? I did? So, you know, Art sold me a bunch of product and I buy a bunch of product from a, manu- a distributor that he worked for prior. And one of the things is, you know, as a salesperson, I think you've said this many times. As a salesperson, if you can articulate the customer's problem before they realize they have it, you will win them over every time. Art is amazing at that. Currently, he's trying to sell me a product, and what is he doing? He's not forcing that product down my throat. He's not telling me that the product's the best ever and it's got the best look and this and that he's figuring out what I have. He's asking me questions every time he sees me. He just does a few here and there, a few here and there. And then he puts together what my problem is and how his product solves that problem. He's done it to me for years and it works even when I know it's coming now. And as a sales rep, if you're having a tough time figuring out how to get in the door at someone or how to keep it going with someone and they're not giving you time, try to figure out the problems that they're dealing with and try to solve them for them or see how your product solves them. Because I think that can go a long way. Again, I will say that spend the time with the dealers that are going to give you credibility or that are going to understand that you're bringing stuff to the table but at the same time, I want I want that sales. I want you to try everything to get this retailer to understand how special you are and how special your brands are. And uh, sometimes articulating that problem or understanding that dealer and how your products solve their problem is a huge deal.
0: Grant, you, you made me think about one thing, and, and we'll close with this. I think that as I, as I mentioned those reps, I know as you've talked to Art, I think that the best reps in the industry know that the power is with the salespeople, not the owner or the manager. It truly is. I mean, when I, when I think about my relationship with Kip and Ed, as I was coming up, they would go upstairs and talk with my boss for 20 minutes and then they would come down and spend three hours on the floor with me and the other people and we weren't talking about btus and i mean we were like practicing hey i'm the husband you're the wife we're coming in to buy a wood stove go okay hey this was this didn't work okay think about talking about this next time now we're going to go for a gas sensor okay this time i'm a single lady coming in okay go I'm telling you, that's where it is. The worst reps go in to have a meeting with the manager. They check the box that they had the meeting and they leave. And frankly, it doesn't even matter if they were able to sell something. It's not going to sustain. I think that, I mean, the rep that's writing this question is excellent. And I know that, I know that, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think that even if you've got a dealer that is truly, you know, not worried about, about being up or being down or being motivated. Maybe they've got a salesperson or two that is good soil. So I would look for good soil, whether it's in the owner manager or whether it's in one of their salespeople. And if, even if it's one of the salespeople, I'm just going to throw out an idea, set sales goals for that salesperson, just set sales goals for them and tell them that you'll, you'll get them something if they hit it. And and you could almost start checking in with them like a sales manager. So I I would just say rounding out, the power is in teaching salespeople how to sell and I would look for good soil wherever it is and where there's not good soil, don't waste your time.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna add one more thing to that. You don't always have to focus on your product either. The most, one of the best sales rep, uh, she came in one time and she had an, I had a new salesperson and she took them through all wood stove sales, wood stove chimney, gas stoves, And that person was dedicated yodel seller from that point, but she wasn't educated on yodel at first. She wasn't educated on, she was educated on hearth and that person gave her a nucleus that she uses today and she is indebted to that rep. So I I think you're right. I think there's so much more we can do and the salespeople truly hold the key. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, Grant, this has been amazing, man. I'm, I'm excited that you're here. And I, I think that these are really, really good questions. And, you know, I look back at, at these, especially these last eight episodes of the eight departments of the Hearth Company, and I think that there's a lot here. I mean, I mean, going back to the question about execution, you know, for me, I, I have been learning that in life right now, we have too many inputs And when we have so many inputs, when there's so much information coming in, it cripples us from being able to make decisions. And so my encouragement as we take this break from season four to season five is that you would slow down. Maybe you go back and pick one podcast episode that you're going to listen to five times. You're going to pass it on to your team and you're going to pick one thing out of it. Maybe you're not going to listen to any podcast during that time. You're going to read a book, but I would say try to find a way to limit your inputs and focus on the things that matter. There's always more ideas than you have capacity for. There's always more good things that you should be doing. Winning in business is about doing the few things correctly, not everything that makes you sleep good at night.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Tim, you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, and I just want to take this opportunity to thank you and, uh, all the the firetime networkers out there and anybody that listens to this podcast because this is uncomfortable for me. This is something that I didn't really see myself doing a year or two ago and with your encouragement have, have signed on. And I still get uncomfortable and I still don't always say the right thing. But I absolutely love what this season brought to the table. And I when I listen back to them, I can't stand to listen to myself, but I can't help but, but think that some people are seeing these as impactful. And I just appreciate you letting me be a part of it.
0: Yeah, man. It's my pleasure. Well, hey, next season's coming soon. We're going to have you back on to talk about scoreboards. My pleasure, man. All right. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. The music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time.